Hi, this is Bron Burton, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Radio Marinara, a weekly radio show exploring all things wet and salty, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radio Marinara's Facebook page. Triple R. Good morning, good morning. As the music fades into the beautiful sunny morning of Melbourne, you are on Three Triple R. This is Radio Marinara. I'm Anthony Boxhaw. I'm Bron Burton. And I'm Kate Mills. Good morning. Well, it's almost yeah. a full house in here. It is. Fantastic. It's lovely seeing like yeah. 3D humans in real life in a studio <laughs> yeah. interacting. I'm looking forward to the time when we don't have to say that. Like it just it's becomes true, normal actually. where we get used to seeing each other without it being online. I went on a plane a couple of weeks ago and oh. that was the first plane I've been on, you know, since. And it was unusual. It was both fun and scary. I yeah, haven't, I haven't left the state so, <laughs> no, man, for a few years. So. <laughs> Tim, I, he has surpassed himself again, hasn't he? It was uh, a, a great display of excellent comic timing in his throw to Steph. <laughs> <laughs> Which only we knew. We did chortle. <laughs> oh, it was brilliant, absolutely brilliant. We, we gave him a standing ovation. <laughs> we did, yes. We, we do every time we see Tim, actually. Yeah, um, everyone does. In fact, I think what, what's more, we should tell the listeners the, the reality, we, we, we actually do a, a guard of honour. <laughs> it's a thing that we do here yes. at Triple R. It's, it's just about what one does to honour the legends of the, <laughs> of the airwaves. We love him. We love him. He's disappeared. I can't see. <laughs> I wonder why. <laughs> you are indeed on 3 Triple R. This is Radio Marinara. We had a big show today. We do. We're kicking off with catching up with Dave Donnelly, our... Uh, our... Dolphin Dave. Yeah. Yes, Dave. <laughs> Who I knows? it was Orchid Dave, but, you know, anyway. Anything there is to know about our charismatic megafauna being whales, dolphins delves into seals as well. So he's going to be talking to us about um, oh, a bunch of different things, where things are at with the migration down the east coast of Australia and across the um, the southeast part of the country as well. Also the mass whale strandings um, from Tasmania, which is uh, nothing short of tragic. So he'll oh, talk yeah. a little bit about that as well uh, and a bunch of other stuff. Whatever else we have time to do. That's it's... pretty much the show. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. After that, though. Yeah, and then after that, we're going to have Dr. Michael Sams from Parks Victoria come in. So he has been, and I have to say I'm envious of his role. I'm sure it's stressful, but he's been handed, like, this massive long-term data set. So like, as listeners are probably aware, Parks Victoria or parks have been in Victoria, Marine National Parks have been in Victoria for 20 years now. And part of that is they actually monitor these parks both inside and out and there's over 20 years' worth of data. And he's basically been in parks for about 18 months, maybe two years, and he's just been handed, like, here you go, long-term data sets. They are rare in science. They have been gifted to you. Make sense of them. And so he's going to come on and tell us some of the stories and the things they're learning. And I've spoken to him a little bit about it. I'm so excited. And, again, that could be a whole show. There's so I much am, to get out of I it. am super excited about this. And I, yeah, as listeners would know, been long-term listeners, I helped design that program 20 years ago. And so I am super excited <laughs> to hear from that level. It's kind of there's an accountability involved. Yeah, well, he's like, well, what was happening 20 yeah. years ago? It was pretty ordinary, but we're, we're doing better now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. He'll probably lead out with that and be like, anyway, well, we got over the initial start, which was crap. <laughs> um, no, but um, so I'm really keen to do it, but also because, uh, uh, you know, with sunlight is the best um, disinfectant for potential 
conflicts and um, I have a role in that organisation, a governance role. So I'm going to sit this one out, Kate, and let you have a chat with Michael. Yeah, well, I did bring the gaffer tape in (laughs) and the cable ties because, I mean, that's science and you can do anything with cable ties and gaffer tape and we'll keep you quiet. I will. I'll be very quiet. I'll be sitting in the background going, oh, really, that's super interesting. (laughs) Hey, and then after that, we haven't had... I was trying to think about Bronwyn's the last time we had our UK correspondent on, and I reckon it's over a year. Probably is. Yeah. So our UK correspondent, <laughs> Dr. Bryce Stewart, is joining us. He's going to, we're going to have a chat about, um, well, offshore wind farms, but particularly because he's, as you listeners know, is a fisheries scientist, the interaction with fisheries, because they've had offshore wind farms in the UK for ages. They've been doing all this stuff, which we're about to start doing. So it'd be really interesting to hear his perspective. So there's lots on, lots on. Heaps on. Are we going to do some weather? Yeah, let's look at some weather for today. Are you going to do it in a pirate voice? No. Oh. <laughs> That's what I should have said That's last time. Right, hey? me to it. It's just no. Problem <laughs> <laughs> was ready for it the pressure, yeah. There's two people, I reckon, with Damn the it. show. It'll be you and, um, no, and Captain Trash. I'm not competing with Captain Trash. <laughs> no, no, none no. of us can. Triple no. R on FM, digital, online, via the app. Hey, now I want to tell you guys about. Oh no, we got to talk about nudie banks. After well, last week, oh my god, nudie yeah. banks. There's a lot of excitement going around nudie banks, which has <laughs> gone viral, which is what we want. Yeah. Like having Nicole Mertens in the studio with some of the products that um, you know VMPA have produced over the last couple of years mm. to just try and get people. It's a bit of a stepping stone. I call it then the gateway drug to marine science, because <laughs> if you can get people into nudie banks and they start to see one, that they just that curiosity sort yeah. of sparks and off it goes. And we've had a few people um, wanting copies of either the posters or the booklets. And they were produced under a grant, so they're all sitting there for free. It's wow. Just get in touch with me, which is actually just my email. So it's Cade, K A D E, at vmpa.org.au. And it is on the Facebook post from last week around that. And I'll just send you through a link. And basically, we just want to cover its, um, the postage and handling to get them out to people. But we really want them in people's hands. So, yes, please do get in touch. And to those that have already been in touch, thank you so much. And it was great. I actually met a couple of listeners yesterday. I was out at the Hobson's Bay Wetland Centre mm-hmm. and they were saying their staunch marinara listens in the Sunday morning grid. So it was nice to hear people that listen to us. But, yes, the um, Sea Slug Census booklets and stuff are really sort of taking off. So it's great. I look forward to it. The Sea Slug Census finishes up today. Um, so if you've been out and you've found it, make sure you start uploading your photos to the project. And I think we found over 40 species, we'll say, at San Remo over the course wow. of a couple of days. Yeah. yeah. It's brilliant. So there's some spots, and, just little gold mines, but we're just starting to learn more about them now. And I think, like you say, if you, and you guys talked about this last week, but the, once you see them, you can't not see them. No, and you keep wanting to find more. Yeah. It, um, yeah, it yeah. sort of feeds an appetite. And they're, they're almost like the birds of marine life. Oh, in, do you reckon there's going to be? Ooh, just lists. Wow, so yeah. people sort of will say, I saw a species I haven't seen before. I've got this. And they're starting to keep lists what will of be what the, they're actually saying. What will be the collective term for that? Oh, we're going to have well, to come up with Nude a... is going to be in it if Bron's involved. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know where that's going. No. Let's leave that city. <laughs> so... Um, <laughs> Kate Maybe is referring to the fact that I call the Sea Slug Census Nerdy Watch and yeah. I have done it forever, yeah. ever since its inception. So so would they be nudies or nuders, like twitches? Uh, we have to play with that. Listeners, yeah. put something on Facebook. Actually, yeah. Tell, Please, us, tell, us, on, tell us what the collective noun for people who 
collect sightings of nudibranchs. Because we've sort of termed them nudie nerds, affectionately nudie, nudie, nudie nerds. nerds. Yeah. 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 But, I mean, I we can workshop it. We can. Yeah. What about sluggers? Oh, oh, yeah, sluggers. <laughs> sluggers in sluggers. <laughs> you guys play with it. We're going to um, – I, mean, I just want to flag one quick thing. Um, the There was such an interesting article in – I can't remember, I think it was in – Plus originally, but anyway, it was it was reflected in the um, in the conversation this week about sea monsters possibly really existing. What it is basically is a mosasaur. If you mosasaurs, um, they were they were about the, the the look of if you can imagine a komodo dragon, komodo dragon with big kind of front fins and tail of a shark. That's kind of what they look like, and they got up to twelve meters. And they were they, there were masses of them throughout the you know different um, aquatic environments about sixty six million years ago. They diversified enormously, actually, just like Tyrannosauridae did on land at roughly the same time. So apparently, there's an interesting paleontological story in that. But anyway, they um, and then of course when the the um, asteroid hit, they all got wiped out. Um, but so anyway, they've just found another, a bigger one that is kind of like the orca version. So it's the one that would have eaten the other big <laughs> ones, you know, and so it's like the top predator. And so it's pretty full on. I, I might try and track down the research and see if we can get him on air. Yeah. It's really cool stuff. You wouldn't want to be a surfer or a diver 66 oh, million years ago, would you? <laughs> Imagine 10 metres of underwater <laughs> lizard coming at you. The shadow yeah. passing over the top <laughs> and it just keeps on going. Anyway, Mosasaurus, very cool. If you, if you yeah. want to go, go have a look at the conversations. It's an article came out this week. It was late this week. Hey, you're on Radio Marinara. We're going to play a bit of music. Um, and then we'll be back with uh, what we, Dolphin Dave. Mm-hmm. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. You're on Radio Marinara on 3 Triple R, and we've got whales coming up. We do. I thought you were going to say we've got whales coming out of our ear holes. <laughs> or blow holes. <laughs> anyway, without Thanks, further ado, <laughs> let's welcome to Triple R. Welcome back to Marinara, uh, Dave Donnelly. Good morning, Dave. Good morning, Brian. Good morning, team. <laughs> we've lost it in here. Yeah. Possibly the lumpiest introduction we've ever had in the 20-whatever years of this show. Uh, hey, oh, well, I'm, so, I'm so, so pleased to be part of it. <laughs> How's it all going? Um, we've got a fair bit to cover in this particular segment. Um, we wanted to, we've had actually a little bit of listener feedback um, in relation to the whale strandings that happened in Tasmania a couple of weeks ago. Shall we start with that? Sure, sounds great. Uh, so can you summarise what happened, basically? Is it a repeat of something that happened about 12 months ago? It's a very similar event to what happened about uh, two years ago, oh, two actually, years ago. now, <laughs> um, except it's about half as many whales, which is saying something because there was over 200 animals involved in this, um, in this particular stranding. Um, and, again, what is causing these events? And we, well, the experts in the, in the field say that it's got a lot to do with the geography of the region, um, what's called a whale trap. So uh, if you can imagine a fish hook facing north and then the, the hook coming down and facing south, um, it's, it's somewhat of a trap for animals. We know that Harvey Bay in Queensland kind of 
gets a lot of humpback whales in there, possibly for the same reason. They're just going inside the island. They turn around and go back out over the top of the island and, and continue their migration. But uh, these are oceanic species, pilot whales. They're coming up off the shelf break, um, onto the shelf, and perhaps becoming a little bit disoriented in an unnatural environment and getting caught in this whale trap. That sounds very simple and may or may not be the cause, but whatever it is, it's a, it's a major event. And it's one of two in two days for Tasmania. And we just had another one in New Zealand two days ago of over 200 animals at Chatham, Chatham Islands. Oh, no. But, uh, yes, oceanic species. I just wanted to ask you, Dave, because... Um, Oh, you see the experts always getting asked what's caused this and as you've sort of made some explanation, but often the answer is like we don't know. What I was curious is what does these events have in common, if anything? I think what the, what's uh, in common with this particular event, Kate, and, and the last one too, well, the last large one um, at, at that same location two years ago is really the geography, and it's and it's been that way for decades, yeah. um, and it may have been that way for centuries, if not maybe thousands of years. Who knows? But um, certainly, this area of Tasmania seems to attract. Um, animals onto that continental shelf break and into that situation where they become stranded and there's no obvious explanation standing out except for the geography of the region. And is it because they head into that region to feed? You're saying that they're close to the continental shelf. Is it something related to do with feeding? That's that's what I personally think and I think a fair few people share that opinion. Um, It may be something to do with upwelling and the push of prey up onto the shelf break and animals following that prey across that region which is of course not their natural habitat. These are deep water species. They're typically found in hundreds if not thousands of metres, not tens or ones of metres. And I guess there, there will be people out there listening who will be thinking has this got anything to do with seismic testing? Do we know anything about um, seismic testing in the area? Um, to the best of my knowledge, my colleague did have a bit of a look, see what was going on with Nopsema, the the regulator for that region, uh, for the sorry for that industry, and there is no seismic testing happening in that region at present. Okay, yeah, it's good, just good to ask that question, I think, because it's something that others, you know, people will be thinking about. Yeah. Absolutely, and, and that question should be asked. We, we should be asking ourselves of all the things that we potentially could be impacting on, and whale strandings could be one of those things and, and certainly have been proven in the past to be associated with anthropogenic noise such as sonar. Can you give us um, just a little quick summary of what's happened in New Zealand? Yeah, a bit, bit blind on that one. Um, about 215 um, long-fin pilot whales, the same species as in Tasmania, um, all deceased, no rescue, a very remote location to, to get to and to uh, instigate a, a response. So New Zealand's pretty good at refloating animals, so I imagine that if it was a possibility, it would have happened. Um, and we, we put those two strandings together, we're talking around about 450 or thereabouts um, long-fin pilot whales from a relatively localised area when you speak about the size of the planet um, between the Chatham Islands and Tasmania. That's 450 odd animals on beaches plus another 14 sperm whales on King Island two days prior. So it's, there's something going on in, in our, um, I guess, in that um, oceanic environment that may or may not be influencing what's going on with these particular animals. Yeah. All right, well, uh, let's move on to orcas because I guess this is a, a happier story. Um, orcas are, are going off. They are going off and to link it with strandings. Let's, let's go past that sad news of those animals all uh, dying or most of them dying. Um, but uh, to link in with 
a discovery made by Killer Whales Australia this year, and that is that in 2013 there was a mass stranding of killer whales on, on Fraser Island um, in Queensland where all but three animals were released and no one knew what happened to them. Um, uh, this week we've been able to match those animals to sightings that have happened on the Gold Coast, Ballina and Port Macquarie last week. Um, so what we can say about that is a very, very rare insight into how do we measure success when it comes to refloating whales and dolphins off beaches? And the answer, at least in the killer whale world for that event, is you did a great job, Queensland Parks and Wildlife, and those animals are still flourishing, including two new calves that were stranded at that event. So we're really stoked about that news, and uh, that certainly will become more than just a, a radio interview in the future, no offence. <laughs> so they haven't been, hadn't been seen for nine years? There's been a cut. There's been sightings. We've gone back through sightings to see what we could find, um, and it wasn't until uh, Ballina, the sighting in 2020, and then Port Macquarie just last week that we realised. Hang on a second, because calves, when they when they're so young, they uh, they don't look the same as they do when they're adults. Mm-hmm. They um, they do cha- they change features, particularly dorsal fins. So it was examining the eye patches of these animals and looking at the likelihood of that being that animal. Animal, and then we found some adults in the group with the same dorsal fin shape and markings, although changed again, um, and found them in the 2013, cat- oh, 2013 collection of images. So it's it's a fantastic story and a, and a probably a world first um, in terms of killer whales, but certainly my first for Australia. And so how do you celebrate this? Like, is it like you get up and pop a bottle of champagne or is there like what because often, often these moments happen when you're sitting at a computer screen in a rather dull environment and then you have these amazing breakthroughs and you're kind of like well how do i how can i celebrate this have you done that yet um well i can describe it to you i look left right left right really really quickly um and uh, then i then i look uh then i then i sent the photos to a couple of other people and could uh, am I seeing things? Is this right? Um, so we've, we've, we've celebrated online in terms of speaking to each other, um, and, I'm, and I'm celebrating by telling Radio Marinara and all of your listeners that this is a fantastic story, and we're going to continue to work on it um, with colleagues in Queensland and New South Wales and, and publish something down the track. And we're doing a round yes. of applause. <laughs> Um, and uh, just to finish up, Dave, where are things at with the rest of the migration? Um, where, where are we at with migration, particularly of humpbacks and southern rights at the moment? Um, well, uh, humpbacks are getting near to their peak in the migration in the Victorian waters, so they're um, they're well and truly um, being engaged around the Wilson Promontory area by the tour boats and such. Um, southern rights have made a, a, a rarity, a bit of a... Out of, not out of season, but close to out of season appearance as they make their way east to west. I think we might have mentioned that last time. But the most interesting story from Victoria and, and New South Wales and Queensland is this, and Tasmania, this, I don't know what you'd call it, a, a spate of sightings of, of killer whales and different family groups all within sort of two weeks um, and moving around the place, moving from Western Victoria through past the Mornington Peninsula, then the Port Macquarie sighting that we spoke of, and, of course, Tasmania, Peninsula, Bruni Island. They just seem to have popped up everywhere. I don't know why. Um, maybe it's because people are out looking. I don't know, but it's, uh, it's, it's keeping us busy. So we're, we're pretty happy with the way things are going in terms of the, the whale and dolphin world, minus the, um, the unfortunate happenings in Tasmania. 
Dave, we'll um, we'll move on. We'll we'll do our own bit of migration now into our next segment. And um, thanks so much for joining us this morning. We'll, oh, just one last quick, very quick question: If listeners want to take part in the citizen science work that you do, what's the best way they can do that? How can they get in touch? Um, well, we're currently rolling out PodWatch again, the, our web-based app for sightings. We're going to be rolling that out statewide very soon. So please start using it. PodWatch can be found on the Dolphin Research Institute website. Um, look under the sightings page and you'll have a link straight to the web-based app. No need to download it, no need to pay for anything, no passwords, no nothing. Just put your information in and I'll take care of the rest. Brilliant. Thanks, Dave. We'll put a link to that on our Facebook page as well and uh, we'll catch you in a couple of weeks. Good on you. Thanks, guys. Have a great day. Thanks, you too, Dave. See ya. Absolutely brilliant. You know, the the thing that always strikes me is when you've got a lot of top predator around, it means things Mm. are a bit healthier. I mean, Mm. it's a simplistic kind of connection, but it is a good insight, isn't it? And there's lots of killer whales around. It means there's stuff for them to eat. I thought it was a killer whale conference. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway. (laughs) (laughs) Are you on Radio Marino? We're going to play a couple of quick messages, then we're going to be back with some music and then we're back with some Marine National Park. Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. Thanks so much for being here. It means a lot. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. Cade, over to you. Yes, we're so excited to have our next guest, Michael Sams, in the studio with us. Michael works at Park Victoria, Parks Victoria, where he's the manager of marine and coastal science. This year, as many listeners know, it's the 20-year anniversary of the creation of marine national parks and sanctuaries in Victoria. And to celebrate, Michael has been tasked with the monumental and exciting task of looking through the science done over this time in and around marine national parks, investigating the effects of 20 years of marine protection now, to condense 20 years of research into 10 minutes, I welcome Michael Sands to Radio Marinara. How you doing, Michael? <laughs> Thanks for having me on the show. Good. It's so good to have you in the studio. Now, I just wanted to point out Parks Victoria often sort of get complaints that we need more marine parks, and look, I agree with that. But when it comes to um, marine parks, Parks Victoria are here to manage the marine parks. They're not here to create marine parks. And the analogy I wanted to use, it's kind of like complaining to your mechanic that you can't buy a new car. It's not their job for you, for them to provide you with a new car, but it's their job their job to keep you on the road. So I just wanted to put that out there. If you're interested in the, the politics around marine parks, you can listen back on April the 10th. We had Chris Smythe come into the studio and talk about things like that. So now that's out of the way. We want to talk science with Mike. Um, God, I, just, I guess the first thing when I heard it was 20 years, I'm like, Please tell me they did some research before the parks were created. Is that true? Is there before data? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Look, when the parks were created, it was a really um, involved process. I mean, I think it took about seven years. And I've got to stop looking over at Anth because he, he was he's not allowed there, to talk. But yeah. Yeah, he's not allowed to talk. <laughs> but um, so I guess there were two major bits of science that were done. So um, I guess one of the, the things that was really unique about our parks was it was really designed as a network of marine protected areas that was designed to be representative, comprehensive and adequate. And so to do that, they brought in all the best available habitat mapping and there had been a bit done across the coast to understand where things are and where we might locate the parks. Um, so it was still limited at that time, but it was done with some knowledge at least of what was out there based on habitat mapping. And then the other the other um, thing that, that uh, 
the state government was wise enough to do was to start um, some monitoring programs in the areas where the parks were going to be as well as outside the parks. Um, and that monitoring still continued today and we build all of our current monitoring programs yeah. off those original ones. And so. I guess that's the exciting bit. Like, I mean, you've been at parks. You haven't even been at parks for two years yet, have you? Year and a half, yeah. Year and a half. And then yeah. you get given like a 20-year data set, which is sort of like any ecologist or scientist dream. Like long-term data sets are so rare in science yeah. and it's like – Here's, welcome to your new job, Mike. Here you go, 20 years' worth of data. How do you start working out what to do with that data? Like, Because I'm sure there's a lot of it there. Yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a good question. And I guess just uh, before I get into that, I don't feel too over daunted alone because we do so much of our work with research partners. So, you know, we've got our research partners across the university and so they've got lots of ideas about you know, different universities. So it's not just these questions. All the so research. it's not all on me. Yeah, so yeah. we can pick the best and brightest to help us yes. out with this stuff. But, um, and it, it's, yeah, it's great. And, and again, sorry to digress, but I guess just a plug for things like our agencies and state governments is that we are really uniquely placed to do that long-term monitoring. We can sustain it. We're not on the three-year kind of research funding cycles. So we've been able to. But in terms of the questions, I mean, it really gets back to what was the purpose of the parks when we set them up. So when we set those parks up, the idea was to protect representative biodiversity. So they were really about um, the conservation of biodiversity for future generations of Victorians. So a lot of our questions are around have the parks fulfilled that purpose at a high level? So well, you know what the next question is then? <laughs> yeah, have, have they? they? Yeah. yeah. And that, I mean, that's been one of the wonderful things about this data set is we have been able to, to, to answer that question. And so um, the answer is, is mixed. So, yes, so we're seeing some species that really do benefit from marine national parks. Um, and so we know this. We compare inside and outside the marine national parks. We've got this 20-year data set. We've just completed some really big monitoring campaigns at some of our key parks, so like at Port Phillip Heads, at Point Addis, at Wilson's Prom. And there we're starting to see some really nice um, stories emerge. So a great one is about southern rock lobster in places like Point Addis where we just see much higher, much bigger numbers inside the marine national parks than outside and of course you know a lot of your listeners will know that animals like that bigger means more babies their babies disperse out to the ocean for up to two years so that's going to be a really important source for for things outside the ocean and that's been mirrored in tassie hasn't it they found a similar result in tasmania with the rock lobster uh, potentially i'm not i'm not aware of that but i mean it's something we're finding across our our network so that as long as i point out us but we're seeing it at cape Howe, um a little bit at port phillip heads that's another story maybe for another time yeah. but um and uh we're just starting to look at discovery bay and we're also seeing it with lots of fish species as well so some of the really common um, key fish, things like blue throat grass, horseshoe leather jackets, things that people will be really familiar with here. Um, and also Greenlip abalone is a really nice example of the non-fish things where we've basically seen an increase since the parks were created as well as high numbers inside and outside. So it's definitely showing that they're achieving that purpose for those species. Yeah, and I think we've not so much skipped over, but it's worth emphasising that you have that inside the parks data as well as outside the parks data and what that allows you to do and what you're saying is that it actually gives you that indication of like this is what protection is doing and because you've got them paired up all across the state it's able to give you that sort of idea across sort of long I guess a, a wide range so it gives you an, an idea across the state and now when I was chatting to you the other day you mentioned something about was it um, horseshoe leather jackets in the east of the state 
and how it's quite an interesting story with their sort of presence there. Yeah, so I guess that's that's the other part to, I guess, getting back to your question about whether the parks have been effective is um, we are seeing some things that are disappearing and changing and largely that's not to do with the parks, we don't think. So we just completed a big monitoring campaign in um, Cape Howe Marine National Park and uh, we're still wrapping that up and still teasing apart what it all means. But one thing we saw there is about four or five species that we find everywhere across the state, common ones like the horse shoe leather jacket, old wives, things like that, um, have just disappeared from that park. We haven't seen them since 2015 in our monitoring programs, that is. So yeah. their numbers have definitely declined. And, um, yeah, so... And they're also not in the reference areas, obviously, like the controls as well. That that's right. They seem to have... So it's a broader... Potentially, yeah, because one of the things that's often missed with climate change, they talk about species extending their range, but they have there's not much talk about the condensing of range. Mm. And I guess this is potentially an example of species being condensed in their range, actually being pushed out of their habitat into the range. Definitely, potentially. We need to do more investigating with that, but there's certainly, there's lots of research out there and, and yeah, Cape Howe is a uh, climate change hotspot, that whole area of eastern Victoria, so... That's likely a driver of what's causing that change. So one of the things I wanted to chat about, as you mentioned, you know, it's, it's 20 years and you know, marine science, while I joked earlier that we still rely on gaffer tape and cable ties and probably PVC pipe to do most of our research, a lot has changed in that time. And you talked about that early habitat mapping mm-hmm. when they were done. Habitat mapping's come a long way since then, hasn't it? So what are we starting to, I guess, learn now as we get more of this technology into the marine environment? Yeah, I mean, I guess now what we're really... It's getting so good now that we can see at a really fine kind of spatial scale, like at really small areas, what habitat's actually there. And so we're getting a really comprehensive picture of what's in our parks. Now, that might kind of sound uh, simplistic, but when these parks were created, it's all underwater, you know, mo- most people see uh, is, you know, waves, the surface of the water, things like that, and without much awareness of what's under there. And it's the same for us. We really don't know in, in a lot of areas or we didn't know in the last 20 years what exactly was down there. So we can basically build these really comprehensive maps. Um, so like at Wilson's Prom, we've got some really comprehensive habitat mapping which shows this amazing environment of these kind of big sandy plains and then these rocky reefs that stick up under the water that are covered in sponge gardens and you know, really critical stuff for us to understand because we need to know what's there so we can manage it better. Yeah, and I think I remember it was probably Deakin University, wasn't it, with some of the mapping, kind of finding new habitats and finding things we didn't know existed 20 years ago and now discovering them in our marine parks. Yeah, and it's amazing the stuff we're discovering down there. Like I think there is a perception that under the water in Victoria is kind of sandy plains and I know even I've had that as you know far back as when I was studying uh, marine science and, and now we're just discovering more and more unique, diverse habitats. So we just did a, some monitoring down at Discovery Bay. We haven't completed the mapping but using underwater autonomous vehicles and getting into the deeper parts that have been really hard for us to get into um, and just seeing like this amazing kind of soft coral reefs, you know, orange and red and all through the deeper sections there that, you know, we didn't know they were there but we didn't know the extent and the diversity of what was down there. Yeah, and that I actually, if you want to see Michael talk about this for longer, there's two ways. One is there's a YouTube clip that's just been uploaded by Parks Victoria on their website. Um, Mike talking about these results and going into more detail. But if you want to 
ask him questions, you can actually jump on the Great Victorian Fish Count presentation night, which comes up this Thursday. If you just type Fish Count in Humanitics, you'll find tickets and you can come and grill Michael and ask sort of questions about that. But one of the things you'd said in that talk that the YouTube one, I had to listen to it, was about the sandy plains and areas around Wilson's Prom and the, Wilson's Prom and the biomass mm. and that idea of there actually being more biomass out in these areas which we once considered deserts mm. compared to what we have on our rocky reefs. Mm. That was... To me, it was a bit of a, once you explained why, which you're going to do now, it's like, oh, that makes sense. But, yeah, why is that? <laughs> well, it's interesting. I guess it's one of the things we're interested in is diversity, and we common, commonly focus on reefs and things like that because you have so many different species that are there, and that's obviously really important of what we're trying to protect in marine national parks. But then out on these sandy plains, what you get are, I guess, some of the bigger creatures that, that move larger areas they don't live attached to reefs so you have the big sharks the big uh, rays things like that as well as the large schooling fish and it's really important habitat for them it makes me think a little bit of like so the african savannah where you've got the huge megafauna that's out there on the grasslands you know and and you know and then you go in the rainforest it's really diverse um and it's the same with the reefs the reefs like the rainforests the large sandy plains are kind of like the savannah with the big you know the big sharks the big fish the big schooling fish all moving through there looking for things to eat effectively. Look at that. We've had two analogies in one segment. We're doing really well. I like that one, Mike. Now, this information you're making publicly available, um, are people able to get their hands on it? Are people able to see this stuff? Are you producing reports? And how do people sort of find out more? Yeah, absolutely, yeah. We're definitely making it publicly available. So I suppose there's two good places to go at the moment. So we've set up a, a website for the 20th anniversary, which you can find via the Parks Victoria website. To be honest, I think the easiest way to find this stuff is to Google Parks Victoria 20th yes. anniversary because <laughs> you know, the, the websites can be a bit hard to navigate sometimes. Um, and... That's got tons of the resources that you just alluded to. And the other one is we, we also publish um, what's called the Parks Victoria Technical Series, which are the, the results of this comprehensive monitoring that we do. And that's on the website. All of them um, going back 20 years now is all available. Um, and we'll be continuing to do lots of comms and media and stuff around these. As all right. Coming. Yeah. So, look, stay tuned. If you want an interesting read, the technical reports will keep you going. Thank you very much, Michael, for coming in. Just before we let you go, Michael, a um, message from Peter Keneally. I wanted to let you know um, uh, on our Facebook page saying, interested, I'm interested to hear about Marine Sanctuary, uh, also not expecting great news. Please, please surprise me, please. I think we've just done that. So, Peter, <laughs> nice I hope you're work, happy. Mike. <laughs> Thank you very much, Mike. Triple R. Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. Hi, this is Tim Whitten. If you want to know what's going on in the ocean, tune in to Radio Marinara on 102.73 Triple R. You know where it is. Yeah, we know Tim. We love it when Tim comes and just pops in the studio. Thanks, Tim. We'll see you next time. <laughs> um, you are on Radio Marinara. It is 3 Triple R. Um, and, of course, Tim's – Tim's. I just read one of Tim's I, – I go back. Have you dipped back into Tim's back books? Like I've just – I've discovered new books he wrote that I didn't know he wrote. I read one over the holidays. Oh, my God. I just I'm reading all of his stuff at the minute. Anyway, hey, so Bron, someone got in touch. Uh, actually, yeah, Terry Allen, our former uh, dive reporter yes, here yes. on Marinara, and who Terry. who uh, we have known for a very long time. A couple of things she's saying that the Oztech dive show was excellent last week, mm-hmm. so we gave that a bit of promotion the week before that. And then a question: How old is Pope's Eye Marine Park? <sighs> 
That is such a great question. It's part of, I think, I think as Michael Lefty it's said, it's part of the. Years, yeah. Oh, it's way over twenty. It was, it was, it was a, it was the power, the Harold Holt Marine Reserve. Ironic, we know. Um, and it was in the seventies. I think it was maybe nineteen seventy-eight. Yeah. So it's been. It's the. It was a tiny little kind of protected area, even though it's a created. <laughs> no, it's a human created area. It's it's the longest protected underwater space in Victoria. That one, uh, and a, a place that um, is very near and dear to divers and snorkelers, particularly when you start diving and snorkeling in Port Phillip Bay. Pope's Eye is one of the first places that you go to. Absolutely, yeah, yeah, yeah. Hey, we have we're gonna we have one of the most patient members of the extended marinara team, our UK correspondent, waiting online. On I can't tell. I think um, oh, and he's looking sad. Um, obviously, he's just lost a monarch, and we're not going to dwell on that. But um, we do welcome Dr. Bryce Stewart all the way live from somewhere in Northern England. How are you, Bryce? Yeah, very well, thank you. Uh, good to be here once again. <laughs> it's great to have you on the show and particularly live because, gosh, it must be almost midnight over there. Uh, yeah, not far off. It's nearly morning for me, but not quite. So I'm <laughs> sat here with a glass of scotch. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we love it. It's wonderful. We, we realised, Bron and I were just saying it before, we don't think we've had you on the show for over a year. So it's an overdue catch-up with our UK correspondent. Indeed. Indeed What's it is. happened? I, well, yes, a lot has happened, and we, you know, I'm just um, crossing myself there for the loss of your recent monarch. That that, that was, um, you know, she's a lovely, lovely, um, um, wonderful older woman. Um, was Elizabeth, and um, anyway, we'll move on. Um, the um, <laughs> we, hey, now one of the things that we wanted to talk about is, as long-term listeners know, you're a fishery scientist, and and one of the things that's been happening around Australia really um, is the transition to renewables, and one of those big renewables is wind, and one of those big ways of producing wind is, that's being talked about in Victoria is offshore wind. And um, we thought, um, where have they done this before? And, of course, the UK, you guys have had offshore wind for quite a while. So we thought we'd have a bit of a chat about offshore offshore wind and fisheries and how they interact. But let's start with sure. some facts. I mean, how, like, is there much offshore wind farming in the in the UK? Offshore wind farming sounds <laughs> a bit strange, doesn't it? But yes, so um, the first turbine was, was deployed in the year 2000, huh. and it's sort of grown exponentially since then. So just in the last 10 years, uh, there's been about a 700% um, increase in the, wow. the number of turbines. So we've got um, over 2,600 wind turbines out there at the moment. 2,600? 2,600. 2,000 uh, kilometres squared of sea. And uh, yeah, it provides about, on the last estimate, <laughs> 13% of the, the energy to the UK. Probably oh, that wow. depends yeah. on how strong the wind's blowing. But, yeah. Um, yeah, on average. So it's a significant amount. Oh, it's not. That is. I mean, that's like almost a sixth, the seventh of the entire UK power comes from from those yeah, two and a half thousand. And so, two and a half thousand. Um, what, what do we call? What do we call an individual structure? What, Tur- turbines. Turbines. Yeah, okay. things. Yeah. So two and a half thousand turbines out there. That would probably. Where are they? Are they all around everywhere, or are they? Are they way so, offshore? Yeah. Well. <laughs> They're not everywhere, so obviously they're not generally too close to the shore, but 
they also, uh, the way they're made at the moment, they have to be in relatively shallow water, so less than 50 metres deep. Mm. Um, and so they are in the sort of shallower places around the UK. So that's mostly the southern North Sea. Um, and then a little bit on the west coast, like out from Liverpool as well. So, um, yeah, most of them are in English waters, uh, mm. but these things are changing. So the sort of latest development is a floating wind turbine, um, which is not just sailing around out there. They <laughs> would like collect it bay somewhere, wouldn't they? So the, these things are, are actually, like, they're floating, but they're anchored to the seabed by a couple of stays. Um, and they can obviously go in much, much deeper water. So that is potentially going to revolutionise, you know, wind generation right around the world in the future. So, Sorry, Bron, you're going to... Hey, Bryce, it's Bron. Um, hey, Bron. Hey. <laughs> um, great to speak with you. Um, uh, just, to, I'm just wondering about the decision-making around the location of the turbines. You're saying that the first one was put in in uh, the year 2000, so that's sort of 22 years ago. How, mm-hmm. how, what kind of decision-making goes into where they go? Because uh, this is a topic of quite significant debate here um, at, a, at a state level but also at a national level. Yeah. So I think, to be honest, most of the decision-making has been based on where they're going to produce the most electricity. Hmm. Um, obviously, they're avoiding things like shipping lanes and, and that sort of thing. <laughs> but they are, yeah, yeah. you know, certainly with uh, our previous Prime Minister, um, Boris, despite <laughs> his failings, he was quite committed on climate change um, and, you know, uh, sort of bound the UK to be net zero by 2050. Hmm. And a big, big part of that is renewable energies. So where you know I talked about that huge expansion. Um, just in the next eight years, they're going to increase that another fourfold. Oh wow! So it's just absolutely mad. Yeah. So you can do the maths. So I'm just uh, trying to work that out. That would mean ten thousand turbines by 2030. And interestingly, that would take wind offshore wind production to be sixty percent of the UK energy market. Uh, yeah, roughly. Um, not, yeah, not quite, but uh, getting up that. Yeah, yeah, that over 50. 50 yeah, over yeah. half. Wow. Yeah, so it's, it's you know, it's absolutely seen as the way forward. So, yeah, I guess the question is where have they been put with regards to things like fisheries and, say, um, areas of conservation interest? Uh, yeah, not so much consideration has been made about those things. And so on um, that, with the... Uh, it now. Yeah, and so the areas you talked about, I mean, you, you talked about um, the, the, the southern part of the North Sea in English was, mm-hmm. if I recall correctly from other conversations we've had on air, that's actually quite a rich fishing ground in there as well. And yeah, so, it's a very, very heavily fished area. Um, and so, yeah, you can imagine the, the fishing industry is not terribly happy about this. Now, one of the things with these wind farms, if you like, so the farm is like a, a collection of these turbines close together, mm. and then they they put them out in blocks like this. And so within that, that collection or that array, you generally can't fish, at least with, with mobile towed gear. So things like trawls and dredges, you're not oh. allowed to fish there. And you probably wouldn't either because it's pretty dangerous, like you might hook up. Sure, sure, sure. Yeah. So, yeah, it's really, it is, to be honest, uh, it is restricting where those types of fishermen can operate. So is there anywhere 
Is there any form of fishing that can occur when when these farms when they're blocked out, or does it almost effectively become like a a conservation zone because there's no fish? Well, this is it. Yeah, so that's quite interesting. It's a little bit of a a de facto MPA, but they are in some cases allowing for um, yeah, like like fishing for crabs and lobsters uh, with putting down traps or pots, which is a big business here. It's one of the main fisheries. And then another thing that's starting to happen, particularly in the Netherlands, um, is aquaculture. So farming for, say, mussels and oysters <clears throat> within the arrays. What, like hanging um, off the side of the turbine? Um, pardon? Hanging off the side of the turbine? Or... Well, <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. Using normal techniques with long oh, lines okay. things like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but yeah. because this, these areas are protected from trawling and dredging, uh, they're actually yeah. ideal because you're not going to have a trawler come in and, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, tow yeah. away your lines. And the same for the guys fishing for crabs and lobsters. They're not going to lose their pots. So it's sort of, it, it is uh, benefiting those fishermen. And of course, around the base of the turbines as well, you've got all these rocks that are the sort of foundations of them yeah. in an otherwise kind of sandy, gravelly seabed. So they've, they've created this new structure that has been shown to really enhance biodiversity it's interesting. Um, and, and certainly even attract fish and shellfish. And I was like just that. going to say, I mean, one of those things that, you know, the, as you all the fishery scientists call them the fads, the fish attracting devices. Yeah, well, that's Effectively, what that's what are. they are. Huh. Yeah. And and is was, was did it get to building on what Brom was asking before? Did, did it get to the point where you had, you know, kind of two industries? Because the fishing industry, as we've talked about before, is while it's not economically massive in the UK, it's important to the UK. Did did you know? Did it get to the point where the industries were kind of having a go at each other, or, or you know? Yeah, I think I don't think over this one not so much. But obviously, the guys fishing with the trawlers and the dredges. They are not happy, you know. There's a lot in the media on a regular basis at the moment about spatial squeeze, as it's sort of termed, where, you know, the areas that they can fish are becoming small and smaller. Um, You know, one of the things with our marine protected areas, we have a lot of marine protected areas. I was fascinated to hear the previous piece. But most of ours are just paper parks. They don't have any management. But that management is starting to come in now. And so... You know, you've got obviously bits of seabed shut off with the wind farms and then the, the MPAs uh, sort of putting in some more strict management. And so it is changing the face of the fishing industry for sure. Is there Are there any good examples, just as we kind of wind up, are there any good examples of where the industries have worked together and they can kind of, you know, they've been able to work out access to, you know, turn off your, your, your turbines and we'll get our boats in kind of thing, you know, on between six <laughs> and three? Funny, or... you know, you're not like worrying about being chopped up or anything. But, um, <laughs> you know, like, so, yeah, there are good examples. As I said, there's these sort of co-location of aquaculture and, yeah, yeah. and wind turbines. Um, but even just off the Yorkshire coast, where I am, which has the largest wind farm in the world, uh, the Horn C2, um, the local fishing industry have actually partnered up with the company who runs that. Uh, and they are not only allowed to fish in there, but they're, they're effectively monitoring it. So uh, they're looking at how is it, it is affecting, you know, the crab and lobster populations. Wow. At the same time as being allowed to, like, catch them and land them and sell them. So for them, it's, it's sort of a win-win scenario. How interesting. And, of course, if you've got extra eyes and ears out um, in your farm, they can say, oh, crikey, this turbine doesn't look like it's working at the minute or whatever. I'm yeah, sure they absolutely. Can be like there, there's huh. all sorts of benefits. So, How um, interesting. 
you know, I can see it being a, a significant sort of development in the, you know, in the future, like, and be great to see what's going on around Australia. Thank well. you so much for those insights because it's going, it's taking off here. Um, we're, we're, we're yeah. at 2020 for you, I think, you know, mm-hmm. but I think with a different conversation happening. So um, thank you very much, Bryce. Thanks for joining us. Pleasure. Bryce right. Stewart, our um, UK correspondent, and um, the music is rising in the background. <laughs> Big uh, shout out to Bryce from Trudy Smith saying, "Oh my God, Bryce from the Melbourne Uni Underwater Club." So yeah, <laughs> <laughs> also from Terry Allen, they both say hi, Bryce. <laughs> oh, that's still hear sensational. Us. Hey, and we've got to thank all our guests. Yeah. Yep. Michael Sams for coming in and joining us in the studio. And Dave Donnelly as well. And on next week's program, Farm's going to be in. We're going to be speaking with Matt Crawley from the Bellarine Catchment Network. And also very excited to have a guest in playing some live music, Ethel Mermaid, uh, about her brand new cabaret <laughs> show, Songs in the Key of Sea. She's Barbara meets Liza meets Patty meets Jaws. She does it all <laughs> underwater. So really looking forward to that. Wow. Good fun. That's awesome. The doctors are ready and lined up and um, we We'll see you all. Thanks. I can't wait to listen to that one. (laughs) See you all. Triple R. Hi, this is Bron Burton. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Radio Marinara, a weekly radio show exploring all things wet and salty, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radio Marinara's Facebook page.